Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Right now, we are in our Advent series, where we look at how Jesus is our hope, peace, joy, and love. Good morning, Calvary family. It is so great to be back with you this morning after having been gone last week. Uh, I wanna thank you for praying for Julie and myself and our family, our two youngest, as we made our way to Indiana over Thanksgiving to be with Julie and Julie's family, um, which is always a great blessing to us. We had a wonderful visit. Um, it's always a lot of fun. In fact, I get a chuckle every now and then. Um, we, I have wonderful sisters-in-law and Julie's middle sister sometimes will ask me, we'll be playing a game or having a family meal and she'll look at me and she'll say, Will, are we gonna make it into a sermon? Are we gonna make it into an illustration? I'm like, well, Cynthia, if you're listening this morning, you and Ken were phenomenal hosts. So thank you for hosting our family for Thanksgiving. Now you can be in our sermon this morning. Well, this morning, I want to continue in our Advent series. If you're not all that familiar with Advent, it's a season of the four weeks that lead up to uh, Christmas Day, celebrated traditionally amongst Christians. And over this time, Christians just collectively during this season reflect on the unexpected nature of Jesus's humble birth, while also simultaneously looking forward to his glorious return. Last week, Josh Hill did a phenomenal job introducing the series and introducing the first of the four major themes that we talked about, which was hope. Let me just push pause right there. I know you wanna thank Josh. I think he's in here. Um, If not, it's his birthday today. So can y'all thank Josh for the great job he did last week. When you see him, wish him a very, very happy birthday. But let me remind you, hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is the confident expectation that God has and will keep his promises. Biblical hope has its heart set on the future, when God will finally and forever fulfill all of his promises. But it also has its mind set on the past, remembering and looking back upon what Christ has already done. And so with our hearts set on the future and with our minds remembering what Christ has done, we can now live with hope in the present even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of strife and suffering and difficulty, and even in terrible circumstances of gloom. For in Christ, we have a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. And so last week, our focus was hope. But this week, I want to turn our attention to what might be the most well-known and famous of all Christmas passages, and sayings. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And this morning we're going to be in verses 8 through 14. You see versions of this passage all over the place during the Christmas season. You see it on Christmas cards, you see it in decorations. It's even quoted in one of the most well-known Christmas movies of all time that Chad alluded to earlier, a Charlie Brown Christmas which first aired in 1965, and I'm pretty sure it's still aired today on a few channels. But if you remember, Charlie Brown is at the Christmas play, and he brings in this little, kind of pathetic little Christmas tree, and he sets it there on the piano, and everyone laughs. 
And Linus is standing there and Charlie Brown looks at Linus and he says, I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. And then at the top of his lungs, he yells, doesn't anyone know what Christmas is all about? And then Linus, with his blanket, speaks up. He tells Charlie Brown what Christmas is all about by quoting Luke 2, 8 to 14. Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas Christmas is all about, right? There it is. At Christmas time, we'll hear multiple times throughout the season what the heavenly hosts proclaim. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. You know, the familiar phrase, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, stirs our hearts in a way, doesn't it? It elicits a deep longing within us for peace. So this morning, what I want us to do as we consider this well-known and familiar passage of Scripture is for us to think deeply about peace. More specifically, as we look at what the angel said, I want us to consider three things. I want us to consider our need for peace. I want us to see our promise of peace. And then finally, I want us to see our way to peace. Our need for peace, the promise of peace, and our way to peace. So let's pray together. Father, we pause in this sacred moment as we have gathered together as your people to sing the word of God, to remind ourselves through song of the glorious gospel of Jesus to celebrate together the ordinances, one of baptism, watching the waters of baptism be stirred, reminding us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, reminding us, the church, what you have done and what you are calling us to. And now, Father, we sit under the teaching of your word, God, your word that is truth. And Father, as we consider a passage that's long familiar to us, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts Lord, I pray that we would think deeply about what the angels proclaimed and all the implications and ramifications for our lives. Father, I pray that as a result, not only would we find peace, but that we in turn would become peacemakers. Lord, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my own heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Speak now to your people. 
we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by looking first and foremost at our need for peace. On the surface, I'm sure you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that seems really obvious, right? All we have to do is look at our world and we see that our headlines, our news feeds are filled with stories of conflict of massive proportions with massive implications. We see and our hearts break over the tremendous difficulty and strife that's taking place in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine. Our hearts were grieved on October 7th when we saw the terrorist attacks by Hamas and now we're seeing the retaliatory measures by Israel. We've watched over these last few days as there's been a ceasefire in the exchange of hostages, but remembering that still a hostage crisis remains. And as a result, we see not only is there conflict in the Middle East, we see now around the world this massive rise in global racism between the Jewish people and Palestinians. We see the continuing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and that's just the things we see and observe around the world. We look at our own country and we also see the divisiveness, right? We see the political divisiveness. You know, I'm kind of in some ways dreading the amount of vitriolic rhetoric that we'll hear over the next 11 months leading into the general elections next November. We see the cultural issues amongst us that create tension, issues of race, issues related to Uh, things around the right to life or sexual ethics. So we see it all around our country, the lack of peace that is there. But we realize very clearly that the lack of peace isn't just out there, is it? We recognize that that lack of peace is also in our lives. We feel it deeply. At times that lack of peace is evidence in our marriages. It's evidence in our families. And it's often heightened in this time of the year when families are supposed to get together and enjoy the most wonderful time of the year as we celebrate the birth of Christ and celebrate Thanksgiving. Now we realize at times these are painful reminders that things aren't as they should be and things are broken amongst people. We feel it internally, not just in our relationships, we feel it inside ourselves. Sometimes that lack of peace just comes from in the form of pressures that are placed on us. I realize right now some of you are dealing with health issues and health scares that are creating turmoil for you. Others of you have walked through painful and stinging loss during this year. And now the holidays are yet another painful reminder that your loved one is not here. Others of you, it's financial pressures, it's job insecurities, it's issues that you're facing that are creating a pressure on you that create a lack of peace. And sometimes, further still, that lack of peace just seems to come from within, whether in the form of anxiety or depression or whatever. And so we look around on a global perspective, a national perspective, a relational perspective, an internal perspective, and we see the lack of peace that exists. And you know, when you read this passage of scripture, and I don't think I've ever had someone from Charlie Brown do our scripture reading for us, but you know that he is quoting the King James Version. And it makes it sound like at the advent of Christ, everything and everyone is going to experience some sentimental and utopian version of peace. When we hear 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward man. And yet no part of our experience bears that out. No part of our experience says, well, that's just objectively true that now, because of the advent of Christ 2,000 years ago, everything just seems to be at peace. In fact, the opposite is true. Our natural state isn't peace, it's conflict. And all the conflict that we experience ultimately, and I don't want us to miss this church family. I kind of want to just jump right into the deep end of the pool. All of the conflict we experience is because ultimately we're in conflict with God. The source of conflict in every area of our world and our lives is the direct result of all of our conflict with God. All the wars, all the racism, all the hypocrisy, all the bigotry, all the marital, familial, relational strife, all the internal turmoil is ultimately rooted in the fact that we lack peace with God. And that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the story in Genesis. It goes all the way back to the garden. In Genesis 2, having been created in the image of God, Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with him. They're walking together with him. They're talking together with him. Adam and Eve are collaborating with God under his good and benevolent rule. They're fulfilling God's purposes. Things are right With them, things are right with God. Things are right in all of the creation. Then in Genesis 3, we turn the page and we see they're tempted by Satan to reject God's authority in their lives and to set themselves up as the ultimate authority over all things. And then we begin to see the demise. We begin to see the dire consequences that are the result of them usurping the authority of God and placing themselves up as the ultimate authority. So now instead of friends with God, what do they become? They become enemies. Instead of walking with him, what do they do? They hide themselves from him. Instead of harmony with him, they lie to him. Blame shifting begins to take place and the consequences were massive. When at once they were at peace with themselves, now their experience is one of shame. Now their experience is one of hiding themselves before each other and hiding themselves before God. When at once they were at peace with one another, now there is dysfunction and now there is disharmony. When at once they were at peace with creation, now the scripture says in Genesis three that there's gonna be pain in childbearing. Now we're gonna see as Adam works the ground that thorn and thistle is going to arise. And I think that's much more than just physical thorn and thistle. There's gonna be, there's gonna be metaphorical thorns and thistles that arise in our world that are gonna make work difficult. And now there's gonna be challenges and strife as we see that. And further still, not only were they no longer at peace with themselves, no longer at peace with one another, no longer at peace with creation. Ultimately, they are no longer at peace with God. They are set outside of the garden and they are separated from him. They are isolated from him. And I think that there might be a tendency in our lives to look and say, gosh, how could they do that? There's a frustration that arises there, but the reality of it is this is exactly what all of us do. We do the same thing. We reject God's authority in our lives and then we begin to experience the same consequences. And because of this, over and over and over again in the scripture, Paul would say that as human beings, our natural state now is enemies of God. 
We see it in places like Romans 5, verse 10. Our natural state is hostility towards God. Thus, we are at enmity with God. Paul would say in Romans chapter three, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And one of the most beautiful pictures of who Christ is and what Christ has done in Colossians chapter one, verse 21, it says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. This is our disposition. This is our natural condition before God. And I want to be clear here. This isn't always easy to see. There is more than one way to embrace our independence and reject ultimately God's rule in our lives. There's the obvious ways, right? There's the overt ways that we reject. There's the way of life that says, listen, I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live it. And no one has the authority to tell me what to do. And no one has the authority to tell me how to live. I can remember vividly. I think I may have shared this with you a while back, but I remember a friend in college. I shared the gospel with him. I was like, you know, and very imperfectly, right? But I shared the gospel with him. I was like, well, man, what, what do you think? And he just looked at me straight in the face and said, well, I think that's a bunch of junk. So I think that's a crock. That's fairy tale. That's wishful thinking. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. I'm going to capitalize on the moment. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to be, be merry. And at some point, this, this roller coaster is going to end, and they're going to put me in a box, and they're going to place me in the ground, and that'll be the end of it. There is a rejection of God that's very overt that's like that. But there is a far more subtle rejection of God that is much harder to see. And it says this, it says, I'm actually gonna obey the Bible and I'm gonna do all these things. I'm gonna go to church, I'm gonna give my money, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna help people out. I'm gonna do that a little bit, but I'm gonna do it out of a motivation that says, God, if I do my part, you better show up and you do yours. And you better give me a blessed life. And on the outside, that may look like you're trusting God, that may look like I'm trusting God, but in reality, I'm not trusting God. It's really just an effort to control God. I'm trying to control the circumstances. I'm trying to do my end of the deal. Man, I gotta be a good enough person. I gotta kind of follow the rules. And if I follow the rules, then God has promised me, man, things are going to go well for me. That is not trusting God. That is trying to control God. And both of those are over rejections of God's authority and God's rule and God's reign in our life. And so the scripture is reminding us that our natural state is enemies with God and that conflict with God will always, always result in conflict with others. Lack of peace with God will result in lack of peace with others. So when self-centeredness rules the day, when everyone and everything has to submit to will's rule and will's reign, you can quickly see how that's gonna result in all sorts of hostility and conflict. Jesus tells us, listen, he tells us what love is like. He tells us what friendship is like. He says, no greater love is a man than this, a friend than this. Then he lay down his life for his friends. That's the way of Jesus, right? It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of selflessness. It's the way of considering others more important. It's putting the needs of others first. And we see that perfectly on display in Christ Jesus, as Paul would tell us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. But watch out, listen, you watch out when I'm on the throne. 
Because typically, if I'm on the throne, there's going to be a wake of brokenness that's left behind me. Now, instead of considering others more important than myself, I'm going to be envious of others who have what I want or have what I think I need. I'm going to be angered with others who stand my way. I'm going to be vengeful against those who wrong me. And instead of sacrificing for others, I'm going to use them to fulfill my own hopes and my own dreams. People will then ultimately become utilitarian to me when I'm on the throne of my life. People are going to become a means to my selfish end. And when they become a means to my selfish end, that's always going to create havoc behind me. It's always going to create that. That's why you remember when we studied the book of James? This has been several months ago now. But as we walked verse by verse through the verse of James, we came to or, or, uh, the book of James. We came to chapter four and in verses one and two. Do you remember what James says? He says, what causes quarrels and, and fights among you? And then he tells us, he says, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. He's saying, you've elevated yourself up as supreme. You are the ultimate authority. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. The very source of the conflict we have interpersonally is the fact that we lack peace with God, and that's always gonna result in a lack of peace with others. We need peace because we are in conflict with God, and it's in our conflict with God that's the fountain from which every other conflict in our life flows. One scholar said it this way, listen, the natural heart, the natural human heart wants to be king. And so it is hostile to God's claims of lordship over us Until we see our instinctive hostility to God's authority, we can't understand one of the great deep mainsprings of all human behavior. We are committed to the idea that the only way we will be happy is if we are wholly in charge of our lives. Of course, this self-centered desire to command and control leads to conflict with other human beings. So hostilities with God lead to hostilities with others. There is no peace on earth because there is no peace with God. There is no peace on earth because there is no peace with God. We desperately need peace, amen? And in this glorious declaration from the angels, we discover not just our need for peace, we discover the promise of peace. I am so thankful that when I read the Bible, we see the promises of peace. God promises it, and he's going to, (coughs) excuse me, deliver it. And when we read the end of the story, this is what we know to be true, right? Let me encourage you. We know that in the end, the nations will cease to rage. In the end, there will be no more suffering and pain. In the end, there will be no more broken families. There will be no more betrayals. All anxiety and worry will be cast away as we reign with Christ forever and ever. We know that's the end of the story. Yet, friends, listen, we must be clear that the most important peace comes out of our greatest need, and that is to be at peace with God. So peace means that we are no longer at enmity and warfare with God. And as we look back to this passage of scripture, we shouldn't miss what the angels declare, and that is this. Peace comes through a person. Peace comes through a person. Look with me again at verses 10 to 12. And the angel said to them, fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in our manger. You know, in our familiarity with this passage of Scripture, we might quickly move past how the angels describe the one who brings peace and removes the enmity, taking us from enemies to friends. But if you mark up your Bible, I want you to do something for me. I want you to look there at what the scripture says, because what we find are three distinct names of Jesus that help us understand how it is that he brings us peace. For the scripture says, for unto you was born this day in the city of David, what? What's the first one? A, a savior, a savior, right? For he is the one who will save us from our sins. You know, the angel said to Joseph when he comes to give him the news that Mary, the one to whom he is betrothed is pregnant. He says, listen, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You know, and remember when we studied the book of Mark, Remember when in, in Mark chapter two, in, those first, in that first story we read there, we see the story of the, of the man who is lowered down through the ceiling by his friends, the paralytic. And he's lowered down there and he's paralyzed. And Jesus says to him, he says, listen, your sins are forgiven before he, before he heals him. And from that, we reminded ourselves that, listen, ultimately our sin is against God, which is why he says your sins are forgiven. And then he is, by saying that, he's declaring that he is the one who actually has the authority to forgive them of their sins. And that's why we read in places like Colossians chapter one, verses 19 and 20, for in him, for in Christ, is the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile, to bring to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making what, church? Peace. Making peace by the blood of the cross. In Isaiah chapter 53, another what might be familiar passage of scripture to you that says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was what? The chastisement that brought us peace. And through and with his wounds, we are healed. I love what Paul would say that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those of us under the curse of the law, that we might ultimately receive adoption as sons and daughters, that we might be able to cry out to him, Abba, Father, do you see what's taking place? We're under the curse of the law. We're at enmity with God. We're enemies of God, but in the perfect time, the fullness of time, God fulfills his promises, sends his son who would go to the cross. Now through him, no longer are we enemies. Do you hear what the scripture is saying? You're a son. You're a daughter. You cry out to him now, Abba, Father, he is the Savior. For unto you is born this day, church family, in the city of David, a Savior. But he goes on. Notice what he says next, who is the Christ. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the King. 
He is the one who has been promised. He is the one who fulfills all the hopes and dreams of Israel. He is the one who fulfills our deepest hope and our deepest longings. It's not just his name. It's a declaration of who he is. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ, the Messiah. And then he says, he is Christ, the Lord. He is the one who sovereignly rules and reigns over all things. I think it's fascinating to note, and I don't have a lot of time just to unpack all this, but you should note it. Look with me at verse nine. And an angel of the Lord, right? It's an angel of the Lord. This one that is declared being the Lord is the ruler over all the heavenlies. He's the ruler over all the angels. He appeared to them in the glory of the Lord shone all around him. It's his glory that is put on display and all of this is being born in this manger. He is the savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the one who brings peace with God. The most basic need we have, one scholar said, is peace with God. This is the foundational to all our pursuits of peace. If we don't go here first, all other experiences of peace will be superficial and temporary. So I love what Paul would say in Romans 5, verse one, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we've been made right with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace into which we now stand. Listen, if Jesus is the source of my peace, think about the implications that that means that I have with others. Listen to what happens. Think about what happens. It's not a far stretch, right? When you stop and think, when I understand that I am deeply known and deeply loved by God, when I understand that there's nothing I can do today that's gonna make Jesus love me any more than he does, There's nothing I have done today or will do today that's gonna cause him to love me any less than he already does. Can you see how that begins to shape the way you think about other people and how you relate to them? If I'm fully accepted by God, here's the reality. I can actually stand before you and share my flaws with you and my weaknesses with you because I actually don't need your approval. I don't need your approval because I'm already approved by the one who sacrificed and died for me. And you know what that creates? That creates a family where people can be humble with one another. People can be honest with one another. People can be vulnerable with one another because we know who we are in Christ Jesus. And if this is who I am in Christ Jesus, I can be humble enough to come to you and say, here's something I'm struggling with. Will you walk with me? Here's something I'm dealing with. Here's a sin struggle I'm having. Can you spur me on to hope in Christ? Can you think, begin to think about now how that begins to bring peace amongst others, peace in the family? When I've experienced his grace and his mercy, I can now extend that same grace and mercy to those who've wronged me. When I've experienced his constant forgiveness, it now begins to shape the way that I forgive other people. Right now, my posture can always be when I think about how, if when I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. When I think the length to which Christ has gone to forgive me and continue forgiving me when I confess and repeat my, repent of my sins to him. 
Think about now how that shapes the way I can actually have a posture of forgiveness towards those who wrong me. And I recognize full well that there are certain things, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be boundaries, there shouldn't be uh, protective measures in place, and when things are, are really fractured and broken and, and trust takes time to rebuild. And, and, and sometimes that, 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 that depth of intimacy and relationship that you long for will only be possible to the, to the fullest degree in heaven. I, I realize that, but we can begin moving towards that now. We can have a posture of forgiveness because of what Christ has done in us. So think about that impact. Think about how it diffuses conflict. Think about how now we can fulfill what the scripture says when Jesus says, blessed are those who are the what, church? Peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. The more we look at what Christ has done in us, now we put away, as Paul would say, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Put that away along with malice. Now we can be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. I love this quote from Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, which is a great little book you know, for you to read, read devotionally over the holiday season. But he said, Christmas means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, that peace with God is available. And if you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. And the more people who embrace the gospel and do that, the better off the world is. Christmas therefore means the increase of peace, both with God and between people across the face of the world. Now listen, I'd like to push pause here for just a second before I get to the last thing I wanna share with you. I realize that right now, some of you are experiencing a deep, deep hurt and brokenness in a, in a friendship, in a relationship that you have, maybe a marriage that you're walking through right now. And I wanna encourage you to be a peacemaker as you think deeply about what Christ has done for you. But I also realize sometimes you need a little help to do that. And so this morning, I'm gonna say we're gonna make this available to you, but I said it to the nine o'clock crowd and all of these books got going. So it's a small little mini book on conflict written by Timothy Lane and is put out by the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, CCEF. I'm gonna order a bunch more of those and we're gonna have them here for you next week. Um, but I wanna encourage you, if you're struggling, if you're in a broken relationship, if there's a conflict that you know needs to be resolved, I wanna put this in your hands. Even as you take the truths we talk about today, take another step to begin to pursue health and reconciliation there. I'll mention it to you again next week. Uh, I want you to begin thinking about it even now. Of course, you can go online and you can order your own if you want, but we'll make those available at no cost to you on uh, next week. So we know we have a need for peace. We see clearly the promise of peace for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ, the Lord, the peace maker, but I want us to see finally the way to peace because the clear teaching of this passage is that you will never, you will never find peace apart from Jesus Christ. Listen, there is not a person here within earshot this morning. There's not a person sitting in these seats today all across this worship center who is not pursuing peace, who doesn't desire to have peace. All of us are, but if you look for peace anywhere else, you'll never find it. Listen, you might experience the absence of conflict for a bit, but that never ultimately lasts. 
I appreciate how one of my favorite authors said it. He said, listen, if we want peace to rule our lives, then God must rule our lives. Christ must rule our lives. God's purpose is not to give you peace, listen, separate from himself. Let me say that again. God's purpose is not to give you peace separate from himself. His purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. That's why we can't, we can't do anything else but look at the pattern that the angels give us. Notice what they say in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. If you want peace, then we must must never stop looking at him. We never stop gazing upon him and what he has done. We constantly seek to give him glory for him to be the most glorious thing in our lives, to be the most highest possession, the highest treasure in our lives, for him to be ultimate in our lives and for every way, in every way to strive to bring glory to him as we treasure him, delight in him, love him and see him as supreme in all things. And the longer we gaze, the more we'll be transformed into his likeness and the more peace we will have in every way. It was Isaiah in chapter 26, verse three, who said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. You bring and keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Calvary, listen, we become what we behold. And when your eyes are on Jesus, when your eyes are on the one who was put on flesh and dwelt among us and who ultimately went to a cross so that you could be redeemed and be at peace with God, when your eyes are on him, we begin to have peace with him and now we can have peace with others. But when our eyes are off of Christ, we can be certain that strife and anxiety and worry and fear will permeate our lives and our relationships. So could I just humbly ask you this morning, if you're sitting here and you go, man, Will, this is stepping all over my toes. This is me. I don't have peace. Can I just humbly ask you, could it be, could it be that you're looking for it in the wrong place? Could it be that you're looking for peace apart from Jesus, the only one who can bring peace with God and in turn, peace with ourselves and peace with man? Could it be? Let me close with this. Would it surprise you this morning if I told you that when Linus quotes Luke 2, 14, from the King James Version, that it's almost universally accepted among scholars that this isn't an accurate translation. When the scriptures say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, we know that. We're familiar with that. But if you look at your ESV or you look at your NIV or your New American saying, you'll probably see that it's quoted differently, isn't it? In the ESV, which is what I read to you weekly, it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The NIV says, glory to God in the highest heaven 
and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's tempting to read the King James Version and just to think that this is a universal application of peace for all people and for all time. But I want to be abundantly clear. God's offer of peace is to everyone. It's to everyone. It's to every person. But peace is only found by those who look to him. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, among those who treasure him above everything else in this life. God's peace is offered to everyone, but peace is only found by those who trust in Christ. In Romans chapter five, we read, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We're all looking for peace. And then in the end, there are only two ways to do it. To look for peace apart from Christ and the search will never end. But peace can be found when you look to the baby born in the manger. The one for whom the angels declared, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. There's a direct correlation between where you set your eyes and the peace that you have. And my challenge to us is to lift them up and to behold him. To let our hearts resoundingly say, glory to God in the highest. May he be the treasured one of our lives. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.